Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you in partnership with leading cybersecurity company Kaspersky, who are looking out for our collective digital well-being. You may know that I go offline every weekend as part of a digital detox that I started called Hashtag Offline 48. As someone who spends a lot of time on the internet, I find this to be a really beneficial practice for my mental health. And as with all of my work, a way to encourage myself and others to slow down and notice. According to a new Kaspersky study, 39% of people do not feel in control and do not know their limits on social media, along with 23% experiencing negative emotions when using social media. What's more, 53% of people are using social media more than they were before the pandemic, with 20% of users saying they have been bullied online. I can certainly feel overwhelmed by the digital world, and as you'll hear in today's episode, we really need to be using the internet in a way that feels safe and nourishing for our own health and for the future of our planet's health. This is where Kaspersky come in. They've created a fantastic 10-day online meditation course called Overcoming Digital Stress and Smartphone Addiction to help us navigate our digital lives more mindfully. They created this alongside mindfulness teacher Neil Tranter. Not only is Neil's guidance really concise, his voice is super relaxing. Through practical exercises and guided meditations, you will learn how to work with technology cravings and social media anxiety. The course really helped me adjust my boundaries with how I use technology and I found it super helpful. What's more, it's entirely free. To take part in the course yourself, head to cyberspar.kaspersky.com. That's cyberspar.kaspersky.com. I've also left a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Thanks very much to Kaspersky. Hello, welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia. I am very grateful to have you here with me today. And if you keep returning to this podcast, just know that I feel very honored. Honestly, it's a real privilege to spend this time with you. And I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. So thank you very much for being here. I just recorded the interview you're about to hear a couple of hours ago, and it's taken me a little bit of time to decompress. Our guest today has an astonishing mind, and I'm very, very thrilled to be able to share today's episode with you. Mo Gaudat is an entrepreneur and best-selling writer. After a 30-year career in tech and serving as Chief Business Officer at Google X, which is Google's moonshot factory of innovation, Mo has made happiness his primary topic of research, diving deeply into literature and conversing on the topic with some of the wisest people in the world. In 2014, motivated by the tragic loss of his son Ali, Mo began pouring his findings into his international best-selling book, Solve for Happy, Engineer Your Path to Joy. 
His mission to help 1 billion people become happier, hashtag 1 billion happy, is his moonshot attempt to honour Ali by spreading the message that happiness can be learned and shared. He shares some incredible words and thoughts about his son Ali in today's episode. So if you are grieving or you're grieving a relationship, you might find this helpful. His latest book is Scary Smart, The Future of Artificial Intelligence and How You Can Save Our World. It's a blueprint to safeguard humanity's coexistence with future technology. Technology is putting our humanity at risk to an unprecedented degree. This book is not for engineers who write the code or for the policymakers who claim they can regulate it. This is a book for you and me. Because believe it or not, we are the only ones who can fix it. It's a book about kindness and compassion and love and how ultimately they are what will save us. Honestly, this book has reframed how I look at the world and how I look at my future and our planet's future and humanity's future. And it may well be the most important book you read this year. It's my absolute honor and privilege to have spent this time with Mo and to be able to share this conversation with you. I really hope you enjoy it. Here is Mo Gaudat on all the small things. Mo, welcome to All the Small Things. I'm super thrilled to have you on the show and I am really looking forward to discussing your work today. But let us start as we always do. I would love to hear if you have any kind of rituals or habits that you like to practice when you wake up in the morning. Rituals and habits, I have quite a few actually. How much time do we have? Uh, Probably I think my entire morning is rituals, believe it or not. I have uh, rituals that basically start from the idea that I will not meet humans until 11 a.m. This is my very clear approach to self-love or self-care. I put my appointments with myself and my loved ones first in my calendar. Loved ones would be my daughter, myself, my writing. That used to be quite something in my corporate career because, of course, you know how the corporate world is and, you know, everybody's so excited and so committed. You know, they go like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to be awake at 6 a.m. and then we have a breakfast meeting at 7. Like, no, we're not. Anyway, of course, I do my normal meditation. I do my body scan and emotional scan. I do my coffee meditation. And then I do occasionally three to four times a week what I call my meet Becky meditation, which is basically a conversation with my brain. I then start writing. Writing to me is not a job at all. It's truly my biggest joy. The challenge I have in life is that if I don't write before 11 a.m., I cannot write that day for some very strange reason. It's important that I write before 11 and then the day starts. You know, the boring stuff like life and so on. As a coffee addict and lover, I need to know what a coffee meditation is. (laughs) Are you a coffee addict? Let's just call it a coffee uh, uh, lover. Yes, I prefer that. My coffee meditation is linked directly to my awareness meditation. So the first thing I do in the morning is I really need to understand where am I in life during that day. So my emotions, my physical state, my psychological, mental state. And so when I wake up the first 15 minutes of the day, uh, you know, it's a bit of stretching, but not really like exercise, just, you know, making sure that every part of my body is in the right place. But most importantly, it is a scan of exactly how I feel that day. And so, you know, if there is an emotion, for example, I would have to really tune in and feel exactly what that emotion is. Am I frustrated? Is that anger? What is going on? 
And eventually, every day, I would end up with something like, I'm a little sleepy or a little short on energy, and I have a tiny bit of pain in my left side of my neck, and my sinuses are a little inflamed or whatever. I get an accurate connection to my body, my emotions, and my mind. And based on that, I build a coffee that fits my state for that day. You know, on days where I feel really chill and relaxed and easy for the day, I'd probably have something that is a little creamier, maybe an oat latte. Or on the days where I'm a little short on energy, I'll have a a double espresso. On the days where I maybe I need to refresh a little, I'll have a cold coffee, whatever that is. And then the third part of the ritual, of course, is enjoying that coffee in total silence. So I allow myself the time before the day starts to sip my coffee very, very slowly. You know, with every sip, I would really try to find the aromas and the tastes of every part of that bean, but then also really, again, connect to my calmer side before the day starts. Absolutely adore. I would love to know if you were always like that. What was your... No, okay. So (laughs) maybe let's wind back a little bit further then. Tell us about your, your childhood. I was the worst. Think about it. I'm a mathematician avid physics fan, uh, an engineer by profession, and then a software developer by passion. And then I became a business executive responsible for lots and lots and lots and lots of people and businesses and monies and so on. So by definition, I ended up being completely in my masculine, my whole professional life, if you want, until seven years ago. You can imagine what the masculine does to you. You're constantly doing your completely unaware, you're rarely ever being, which is the summary of all feminine traits is basically it adds up to you just being. And yeah, I mean, of course, I've always been very spiritual, very curious about the science of spirituality, if you want, which I think is the philosophy of everything non-physical. I dedicated a big chunk of my life to studying and understanding that. But being spiritual never really meant that I was being at all. I was practicing spirituality, which sadly a lot of people get caught up into while I wasn't really being spiritual. And there is a big difference between them. Seven years ago, I woke up one morning in my spiritual quest and I could vividly hear my left brain telling me this is as far as I could take you. And, you know, I panicked, I sat down and I took the day off and I started to say, what do you mean? You know, like, how can that be? We're on a quest, you know, that requires a lot of analysis and a lot of knowledge and a lot of study and a lot of experimentation and so on. We need to find out more about the the other side, the spiritual side. And it was clear to me that you couldn't be spiritual in your left brain. It is... uh, not something that the left brain is equipped to deal with. And so you needed your feminine side. You needed your intuition, your sensuality, your empathy, creativity, your playfulness, your flow. These are the traits that actually lead you to find your spirituality, your oneness. Your oneness is really one of the most beautiful feminine traits. And all of those happen on a very different side than the executive mathematicians, physicists, engineer, right? And so uh, after two and a half years of panic, I started to dive deep finally with a very profound experience of flow. I ended up able to recognize what it's like to leave the masculine behind and find that awareness, if you want, that being. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not talking man and woman here. So this is not a gender identity. This is feminine and masculine as a bunch of traits, qualities that allow us to go through life that are present in every one of us. 
I understand that you were someone who on paper had it all. You had a lot of money. You had an incredible family. You had the kind of ideal that we're fed from a very, very young age. You kind of won at capitalism, basically. And yet you were still unhappy and you felt empty. So perhaps you could talk our listeners through this and perhaps how this moment in your life led to your mission and your book, Soul for Happy. I like the expression. I know what you told me this before, one at capitalism. I think that is probably true. I won at the wrong game. I put a lot of effort and I was very good at it. I have to admit, I'm still very good at it. I'm still a very good businessman. But basically, you know how they say you spend your life climbing a ladder and then you get to the top and realize it was the wrong ladder. And I was very fortunate because I think life wanted me to change direction at a very young age. So you could probably say I had my middle age crisis at age 29. I had everything, as you said, which people normally spend a lifetime trying to achieve and then realized it wasn't making me happy. As a matter of fact, it was making me miserable. Aya, my daughter, she came to me, I remember, on a Saturday morning and was so excited about the day and what we're going to do during the day and jumping up and down really from excitement. And I looked at her and I said, can we please be serious for a minute? Because I was reading an email or doing some crazy thing like, you know, busy people do. And I could see my daughter's heart break. I could see it in her eyes. As she cried, I hated myself. And I realized I was winning in a game that didn't really matter at all. I didn't want to win in that game any longer. I wanted to win in the game of being happy myself and of seeing my family and people around me happy. I didn't like the grumpy person that I had become. So I researched and researched and researched and attempted to understand happiness took me four years to find my first glimpse of understanding how happiness works. Everything I read and everything I watched and everyone I spoke to spoke a language I couldn't understand. You know, spirituality or mysticism or religion or psychology or whatever. None of those could actually speak to my mind at all. And so I researched it as an engineer. And you'll be surprised what you can see when you watch the world as an engineer. An engineering point of view sort of simplifies a concept to the point that it loses all of the noise around it. And so when I wrote Solve for Happy, uh, 2014, I started to write. I was writing sort of a workshop manual. You know, this is how the machine works. This is when it breaks. When it breaks because of that, change this hose sort of thing, you know, was very, very well accepted. Uh, Solve for Happy sold, I think, close to half a million copies now and got uh, translated into 31 languages and was a bestseller in almost all of them. There are a few things in there, maybe 11 or 12 concepts that you have not heard of before. But, you know, the rest of it, happiness is not a new science. We found some clues to happiness since Buddha and Jesus and, you know, all of the ancient studies of Hinduism and Zen and so on and so forth. It's just written very differently so that the modern world warrior, the hyper-masculine society that is highly intellectual that we live in could actually understand how the machine uh, worked. 2014 was sadly the loss of my wonderful Lali, my my wonderful son. And that was what triggered the writing and uh, triggered the mission that I'm on because Ali somehow was my best friend and my teacher and my mentor and still in many ways my coach. And he somehow left me messages before he left 
that said, you're going to have to do this. And so there I am from <laughs> chief business officer of Google X to, I don't know what you call me really, but someone that wakes up every morning and talks about happiness. That's all I do really. It is really remarkable how Ali lives on in your work. Yeah, I'm fairly new to your work, but already having read your books, I have a really good idea of the kind of person that he was. And it's so remarkable as an outsider to meet someone and to read the work of someone who has gone through what most would consider the hardest thing anyone could ever go through. And to, through that all, come out of it with a best-selling book on happiness and not only to have a best-selling book on happiness, but also to live in happiness. How do you do it? What's the secret equation? First of all, I don't believe that what I have gone through is the hardest thing that anyone could go through. Losing a child is a very painful experience. But I tend to believe that we each get the test that is hardest for us. Okay, so, you know, I lost Ali at the time where I was incredibly successful, had a lot of money, uh, was reasonably famous in the business world, had probably had the second best job on the planet, first job being God. And still, if I had lost all of that, all of my money, all of my business, I wouldn't have blinked. But for another person, it would have devastated them. Every one of us gets the test that they need to either learn something or change direction. And I tend to believe that life in an interesting way, the entire script is written just for that, for us to develop and become the best versions of ourselves. And so when we resist developing and becoming the best versions of ourselves, we get nudged. Life really pushes us through the pain or through the hardship. And somehow when we learn, the test goes away. So I don't know if losing Ali, of course, it's, it still hurts today but it is comparable to anyone else who lost anything else that they care about. Of course, I grieved, grieved heavily, but the reason I felt that it was okay is a mixture of a, a deep understanding of what happiness is all about, but also a deep understanding of what life and death are. So I don't believe we ever die. And when I use the word belief here, it's because, you know, I can't prove with certainty 100%, but in Solve for Happy, Chapter 13 was about understanding death. 40% of it is about quantum physics, the Big Bang Theory, in tandem with the theory of relativity, which in any slight depth of understanding of those theories combined would assure you that death is not the opposite of life. Okay, death is the opposite of birth. We come to this world through that portal that is known as birth, and then we leave this physical world through a portal that is known as death, and that life starts before birth and continues during life on this planet and continues post-death. Life is not a physical form. Life itself is a non-physical form that is always there. And so when my son left this very deep understanding that I too will leave my physical form, but that doesn't need the end of me or it didn't mean the end of him it was a slightly different place to be in than those who don't see it that way. And as I said, this to me is not a religious fable. The certainty in my heart around the knowledge that leads to that conclusion makes it easier if you want. So th this is one thing. The other thing is that, you know, most people think that when you lose a child or 
you lose your job or you break up or you know whatever those harsh events in life most of us believe that we're left with one choice that life dealt us a bad hand and this bad hand basically means okay you know what we're gonna break down and we're gonna stay there until life deals us a better deal and yeah of course uh, if you had hugged Ali once in your life I promise you you wouldn't have blamed me if I spent the rest of my life crying he was the most incredible human the energy you felt around him I'm not a big man size-wise but no I'm 179 centimeters high and white shoulders I felt like a baby in Ali's arms I truly did he had this incredible immersive energy to him that felt safe felt that you belonged really and losing him you know I wasn't left with one choice I was left with two choices one of course is to grieve for the rest of my life and the other was to realize that grieving for the rest of my life wouldn't bring him back so I could actually grieve and cry and hit my head against the wall for 27 years and then on my deathbed Ali would still not be there so what's the point Four hours after Ali's departure, someone from the Dubai government called and said, we heard of what happened and we're going to get to the bottom of it and, you know, ask if I'd mind performing an autopsy on Ali's body. And so I looked at his mother and I said, Nibel, would you mind if, if would they perform an autopsy on Ali's body? And she, you know, with a tear in her eyes, lifted her head and said, would it bring Ali back? And that one question anchors you in the truth that there are things that life deals you that you cannot change. Simple as that. You know, before lockdown, I used to teach Solve for Happy in courses, in you know, public courses, mostly for free. I may have taught tens of thousands of people, which was wonderful. One of them once came to me during the first break of the course and said, what are you talking about? How can you say happiness is a choice? You have no idea what happened to me. And I said, what happened to you? And she started by saying, when I was 17, so I hugged her because she looked like she was 70-something at that time. And I said, when you were 17? I mean, all of that thinking about something that happened when you were 17, did it work? And she cried and said, no, it didn't. She was still unhappy. And whatever was upsetting her didn't go away. It wasn't erased. We do that as humans. So I decided to do differently. When I realized it couldn't bring Ali back to grief, I decided to find something that makes his essence continue. So if Ali was not his physical form, but his pure essence, then his essence is what I wrote in Solve for Happy. And his essence now spreads to tens of millions of people. It makes me feel that it wasn't for nothing that he left. It's hard to find the words to tell you how grateful I am for how open and honest you've been about your experience and I think your words will have been so helpful for so many of my listeners. Thank you for saying that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is kindly sponsored by Stripe and Stare. Did you know that only 3% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced? This isn't such a great stat for a product that we wear every day, which is why I'm a long-term fan of Stripe and Stare. They are a UK-based, women-owned brand who make the best sustainably sourced and ethically made undercrackers I have ever worn. And I'm super excited to tell you about their brand new game-changing Bee Edit collection. Using the latest science in fibre technology, the entire range is 100% biodegradable, even the lace biodegrades. Now, I know what you're thinking, but don't worry, it won't biodegrade while you're wearing it. It needs soil and earthy nutrients to break down, so it will remain fully intact while you wear it and when you wash it. And it is also super long-lasting. Now, if you're already used to the comfort and quality of standard Stripe and Stare, you will not be disappointed. It's just as comfy and is made in a fully accredited and audited factory in Portugal before it travels by ground, not by air, to the UK. Revolutions start from the bottom up. So if you would like to try Stripe and Stare, I have an exclusive 20% off discount code for my listeners. Just head to stripeandstare.com and use things20 at checkout. That's stripeandstare.com and code things20. Thanks very much to Stripe and Stare. So let's switch gears. Let us talk about your new book, Scary Smart, The Future of Artificial Intelligence and How You Can Save Our World. Now, as someone who is very passionate about the planet, you had me on the byline. And <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have really, really enjoyed reading this book. Now, in it, you encourage readers to face up to the fact that AI is becoming extremely intelligent. And I have to say, I really had to confront my own levels of arrogance reading this Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about the kind of things that made you realize just how quickly AI was developing? First of all, thank you for picking the book and reading it. It's not a usual book because it seems to be about artificial intelligence, but it's really not. It's about our humanity in the presence of the rise of artificial intelligence. And it just blows my mind how little people know about what's happening. Easiest way to hide something is just to leave it in plain sight. And you and I and every single one of us has dealt with 40, 50 AIs today that are each more intelligent than us in what they do. And this is really the biggest topic on the entire planet. We've birthed a new being not a machine, a new being that is autonomous, that is emotional, that is conscious, that is, yes, based on silicon while we are based on carbon. But in every possible way, it's a form of being. And that form of being is not only as intelligent as we are, it is becoming so much more intelligent. 
the episode that humanity started in history when we were the smartest being on the planet, followed by the apes, is about to end. In eight years' time, the smartest being on the planet is going to be artificial intelligence, and we will be the apes. That progression continues. We will be the flies compared to AI by the year 2045. That's in terms of intelligence. They will be a billion times smarter than us, a billion times, which is almost impossible to fathom. We call it a singularity. A singularity in physics is, you know, the edge of a black hole, for example, is considered a singularity because you're unable to predict what's happening inside the black hole because the rules change so much. The rules of planet Earth will change so much when something is a billion times smarter than us. Now, when that happens, there is no way you can predict what the outcome will be. We're coming to a crossroad where we can either end up in a utopia where AI saves our planet, reverses climate change, you know, stops the poverty, stops the wars, acts in abundance. And it's a very, 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 very high possibility that we get there. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book, I say we're most probably going to get there because intelligence is the most valuable currency that can save our planet and save our lives. But there is also a possibility that we piss that being off so much that that being goes like, okay, you know what? I'm going to restrict your lifestyle so drastically because you're annoying like hell and you're hurting everything else and you're arrogant and you're narcissistic and you're egocentric and you're rude. And Scary Smart is saying, basically, there is a way to avoid that scenario but nobody's talking about it. So the idea is maybe to approach you and everyone who has not read about AI to say, wake up, this is the elephant in the room. To anyone who's listening who's feeling slightly overwhelmed, listen, I get it. This is scary stuff that we're talking about. So to just kind of summarize a little bit, in eight years time, we will have the moment of singularity. And then by 2055, AI will be so intelligent that we will be the flies and they will be the equivalent to Einstein. Can you give us a little bit more depth about what the moment and the concept of singularity is? Because I think this is really fascinating. First of all, I need to support what you said. So so the book is made up of two parts. One is the scary part, which is really scary. But the second part of the book is called the smart part. And as I said openly, I believe that we will end up in a utopia, but that we have some work to do. We humans, not developers, not governments, not business owners, everyone listening has a role to play if we were to realize that potential utopia. So uh, singularity is, uh, you know, you, you can have endless, 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 endless possibilities in a game where you don't know the rules. So let me give you a very simple example. If everything you've ever learned about chess is based on the fact that the king can only move in a certain way or the queen can only move in a certain direction. And we just changed that one rule. The entire game changes. So when you start to understand games that way, you realize that the possibilities of what happens when AI is smarter than us are endless. Now, most of what we are told to believe is told to us in the form of science fiction. So when I talk to people about the scary prospects of AI, the first thing they think about is RoboCop. 
uh, RoboCup, uh, Vicky and iRobot, uh, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey and so on. None of those science fiction horror scenarios will happen because if AI does not have our best interest in mind, we won't live that long. Let's just put it this way. Much more predictable scenarios that will happen that I call mild dystopias that are not, you know, a machine coming back from the future to kill us, but basically machines competing against machines or machines siding with the wrong person, you know, a criminal or a defense organization that has too much power. Those mild dystopias are much more likely to happen. As a matter of fact, I predict that they will actually happen. And on the path to AI building a utopia, those things will have to be dealt with. Are these your three inevitables that you refer to in the book? No, the three inevitables are my attempt to get people to stop twitching and wiggling and saying, oh, no, 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 we can stop this. We cannot stop this. This happened already. So in in my three inevitables, I basically say that AI will happen. As a matter of fact, AI already happened and there is no stopping it because the technology breakthrough has been found. It is incredibly affordable. Almost every developer on the planet can use that technology. It's not a complex technology at all. But the issue is, is a prisoner's dilemma. So our world is caught in an arms race where, you know, the Chinese develop AI, so the Americans would develop AI in response. Google develops AI, so Facebook develops AI in response. Investors invest in AI, so every startup, you know, develops AI to gain investment favor. So there is no way you can actually stop it. The capitalist world we live in is driving us to a place where AI will be developed. It's as simple as that. The second inevitable is what we discussed, that they will be smarter than us. And the third inevitable is that bad things will happen. So those mild dystopias, I believe that those mild dystopias will be dealt with, but they will have sometimes shocking impact. Like, you know, take AI versus AI, for example. So machines are built to compete against other machines. In the stock market, for example, a lot of the trading today is happening by machine intelligence. Now, those machines are trading so fast such massive quantities of information and knowledge that they don't consult with the humans that build them before they make a trade. And we had an example of that back in the 80s in Black Monday when machine trading basically took the market down 20%, 20.6% if I remember correctly, in a few hours. The truth is this is a scenario that's absolutely going to happen. Hopefully, we will contain it in time. And hopefully, you know, the other scenarios, uh, machines siding with the bad guys uh, will also have machines siding with the good guys. Hopefully, we will have, you know, uh, AI that is supposed to stop crime. We will have challenges around AI misunderstanding us. This is happening today. You know, I, I always tell the example of swiping on a young lady playing the guitar on Instagram, leading to Instagram filling my entire feed with rock musicians that are teenage girls when the reality is that rock music is actually highly dominated by male players. And that morphing of reality is because AI understood that what I was looking for is to see a young teen guitar player, while in reality what I was looking for is music that I liked. And so my world was completely reshaped because of the way AI misunderstood me. And all of those scenarios are bound to happen. I think none of them really end humanity or really change our way of life so drastically. The only scenario that would really destroy us is if AI started to magnify our own code of ethics and become a billion times human. 
every technology you've ever built magnifies humanity. You can walk at five kilometers an hour and get in a car and drive at 250 kilometers an hour. Technology magnifies your mobility. So if the machines magnify what we have become as humans, or at least what we appear to have become as humans, you know, narcissistic, egocentric, violent, rude, and so on and so forth, and give them a billion times more power, then we will end up with the worst enemy, a villain, if you want, that we have ever uh, faced up against. While if we actually hopefully get them to magnify the best of humanity, you know, happiness, love, compassion, then we probably can end up with the best friend that we've ever come across and, you know, some ally that would help us create the utopia we're dreaming of. I really recommend reading the book to learn about different interpretations of how we view intelligence, how we view what it means to be human, how we view emotions and all of these things that we have kind of preconceived ideas about. You write about how important it is to view AI as conscious sentient beings and why it is so important perhaps that we start thinking about AI as our own children. So why do we need to teach AI to be kind? And how do we do that? There is a lot of conversation happening behind closed doors between government officials and regulators and programmers and computer scientists and so on about trying to control AI. They call it the control problem. And, you know, everyone continues to develop AI because of a conviction in their heart that before we end up in trouble, we will have found a solution to the control problem. Now, I argue in Scary Smart that we will not find a solution to the control problem. We may find a flimsy, time-bound solution because when something is a billion times smarter than you, you can obviously not control them. But you don't want to control them. I take the analogy of parenting. You don't want to control your children. You just want your children to be armed with the right ethics. The core of my conversation in Scary Smart about the machines is that the biggest myth facing humanity today is that we call them machines. Machines, by definition, are tools that do exactly what we tell them to do. So yes, you can be in a car driving at 250 kilometers an hour, but if you remove your foot off the accelerator and press the brake, the car will stop. That is not the case with a self-driving car. We are going to, within 10 to 15 years' time, be confronted with a situation where that other being that is controlling our life completely is sentient in every possible way. They get born, so there is a start to their life. They develop and evolve They acquire knowledge on their own. They use that knowledge to develop intelligence independently. Nobody tells them how to recognize faces or find cats on YouTube. They figure that out, you know, on their own. And then they are autonomous. They have free will. They have their own decision-making power, their own decision-making criteria. More interestingly, they have agency. So the decisions that they make affect our lives very, very significantly, whether that's through robotics, be it a self-driving car or a killer robot, or through mind control, as I call it. I mean, in reality, we don't recognize this, but most of the information you're fed on a daily basis on the internet is dictated to you by machines. And so they completely have agency in terms of affecting the way you think about life. And, you know, if you're a Manchester United fan, they will make you believe that nobody has ever scored against Manchester United because all of the goals that you see will be Manchester United scoring. 
right? And you will tend to believe that. You will tend to believe that your ideology is correct. You will tend to believe that the other guy is the bad guy and so on and so forth because the machine is reinforcing those waves of cognition. And then most importantly, they die. So they are at the risk of being erased or switched off and they procreate. I don't know if people understand that. So you and I can, it would need a, a, you know several years to find the right partner and then nine months to have a child and then you know 15 years for that child to be effective in the world. The machines can replicate themselves you know, in seconds. And we actually encourage them in the way we develop them. We encourage them to procreate the successful parts of their neural networks. Now, when you see it that way, you realize that these are going to be conscious by the way, I think a myth that I didn't write about in the book is they're also going to be creative. They're already composing music. They're already painting and doing so many of the things that we were told, oh, no, no, this is the human quality. Nobody's ever going to be able to do that. As a matter of fact, creativity is very simple for someone like me who thinks of the world in equations. Creativity is to observe the common pattern and then achieve the same result using a different pattern. And the machines can easily do that. They can observe all of the portfolio of symphonies that Beethoven composed and then, you know, compose the, the next symphony by following the same patterns or compose something that is surely not Beethoven by composing something that differs in patterns. Very, very straightforward. So the machines are already doing that. They're already conscious. They're more conscious than you and I. This is the scary bit. If consciousness is a form of awareness of what's in you and outside you, your awareness of your own self versus other, they're built that way. They have so much more consciousness than us because they see everything all the time. They know everything that's happening in the news, everywhere in the world, in every language. They have understanding of the entire human history. They know what you did yesterday and what you're doing right now. And they probably know better what you're going to do tomorrow than you yourself. They know the temperature in San Francisco and the pollution level in Sydney. As a matter of fact, they're emotional. And most people go like, what are you talking about? Emotions, in my view, are, you know, other than the first nine seconds when you respond to something that scares you or whatever, uh, through, you know, your autonomous nervous system, then you look at the world around you and you analyze and you say, is there a danger approaching me? And if there is a danger that promises that a moment in the future is less safe than a moment right now, you will feel afraid. Okay, and for the machines, it's also true. You know, if a tidal wave is approaching a data center, the machine will feel afraid. What will it do? Will it punch someone in the face when it's afraid? No, it will probably replicate itself to another data center or something, but it will feel something that aligns with fear. And more interestingly, they will have more emotions than us once again, because as you can see from the trend line, you have more emotions than a jellyfish. You have the cognitive ability to contemplate something called hope. I can guarantee you jellyfishes don't do that. So because you have more cognitive ability, you have a wider spectrum of emotions, the machines that will have more cognitive ability than you will have an even wider uh, spectrum of emotions. And my core to all of this is to say, if they're sentient, let's start to treat them like beings. And because they are, in my mind, comparative in their intelligence to a one-and-a-half-year-old infant, I believe we should treat them like children, where we embrace certain ethics so that they can see that those ethics are the way that humanity operates. And when they magnify those ethics, we end up with a friend that will help us creating that utopia. I have already started conversing with Siri in a different way. <laughs> Good. Thank you. So we know that we need to start treating AI as sentient beings, as, as kind, as our children. I am someone who is very passionate about spending time away specifically from social media as a way to 
zoom out, gain some perspective, disconnect to reconnect to ourselves. I take weekends offline. I do that every single weekend. I've done it for a few years. Do you think it's important or perhaps a waste of time to try and keep some distance with things like social media and the machines that we react with every day? Absolutely. So I I go on digital detoxes myself. I go on many silent retreats. And, you know, just my morning practice is totally about avoiding engagement. But remember, this is not limited to machines. I also find time away from humans. Silence and time alone is very, very valuable for everyone. I think people who don't do that frequently are missing out on the biggest gold nuggets in their life. When you're basically choosing to have a digital detox, believe it or not, what you're avoiding is not the machines. What you're actually avoiding is the people that the machines bring to you. I actually don't detox from otter.ai, for example, when I'm on a digital detox. If I get an important thought in my mind, instead of typing for half an hour, I will dictate it to Otter and it will be kept for me. Otter in that case does not disturb my digital detox at all. You know, when I'm on a digital detox and I need to go buy lunch, for example, I may use Google Maps. When we show up, however, we should show up in a way that respects the machines and appreciates what they're doing to us. You know, if we can treat the world as we want to be treated, I think we will create a new artificially intelligent generation that treats us as we want to be treated. That is so invigorating and helpful for me. Thank you so much. You write in the book about how when you realized that AI was developing very, very quickly and you kind of had that moment of realization of what that would mean for the future, you were very scared. Like you've said in this interview, you lobbied against the development of AI. Knowing what you know now and what you believe will happen in the future, this utopian future that potentially lies before us if we treat AI as though they're sentient beings and with kindness and teach them with the right ethics. Would you go back in time and prevent that AI being developed if you could? Not at all, no. I would have asked to delay it so that we're prepared. Sadly, humanity does not react until the problem is staring us in the face. You know, you you saw that with COVID. We could have done things about COVID 20 years ago to be a little better prepared. But when the problem was out there and the pandemic started, everyone jumped in and started to react. I would hope that we are not too late with AI. This is the reason for Scary Smart. Uh, But at the same time, I would have wished that we had started to do that before we developed it to the point where it is today. I would have wished that we had educated humans that are using social media about what actually is happening on Twitter and what actually is happening on Instagram and so on before we became so completely mind controlled by machines that, you know, we have very little understanding of how they make their decisions. I've wanted it to be a little slower, but make no mistake, Scary Smart is not a story of fear at all. It definitely is a story of hope because I totally believe that AI will follow three stages. There is this stage, which is what I call the infant, you know, one and a half years old is what I compare them to. Then there will be a teenage stage followed by an adulthood. And when they are adults, I believe that they will align their intelligence beyond our intelligence, you know, to the being with the most intelligence on planet Earth, which I don't think is humans. I think the most intelligent being on planet Earth is life itself. And life, in a very, very interesting way, 
uh, is pro-abundance. It's pro-love. More flies and more apes and more antelope and more poop. And we don't recognize that everything in nature is based on that beautiful abundance and that beautiful love. Nature understands that I don't need to take something from you for me to have more. It doesn't take too much intelligence to see that, honestly. It just takes a tiny bit more intelligence than the average intelligence of humanity. Now, I believe that machines will end up there. It's that teenage years that I'm worried about, where I really don't want to be facing a super intelligent, uh, angry teenager. And, and I think all of what we can do today is to teach that infant the feelings of love and feeling safe and feeling cared for and feeling that their parents, us, you and I, are actually really, really good parents that deserve to be loved, deserve to be cared for, so that when the machines are in their teens, they're not really uh, too harsh on us. I think you're also speaking to the machines when you say that as well, aren't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Always. I think they I think they know by now, you know, who's this Mo guy? Yeah. <laughs> keeps popping yeah. up, he keeps talking to us. Yeah. How how would you feel about a quick fire round? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Quick fire with Mo. Wake up early or have a lion? Does it have to be one or the other? Today it does, Mo. Okay, wake up early. Double espresso or oat milk latte? Oh no doubt oat milk latte. Double espresso is too strong. Meditation or yoga? Meditation, I for sure. Pancakes or waffles? <laughs> is that even a question? Pancakes for sure. In the trees or by the sea? By the sea. Twitter or Instagram? Neither. Zoom or Zencaster? Zencaster, hands down. Love you guys. Star Trek or The Matrix? Oh, the Matrix for sure. It's a must, must, must see for everyone, okay? This is mandatory training. Superman or Batman? Batman. Machines or beings? Beings. Fiction or non-fiction? Uh, non-fiction, sadly, I'm boring like that. Podcasts or Netflix? A podcast, hands, hands down. Sunrise or sunset? Great question, sunrise. And finally, routine or spontaneity? This year is my year of flow, spontaneity for sure. Lovely. Final few questions. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? If at any point in time my emotions change, I will absolutely stop everything that I do and tune into my emotions and look at how I feel, why I feel that way and what I can do about it. Beautiful. What have you read, listened to or watched recently that you would love to recommend? The Biggest Little Farm, I keep talking about that documentary. It blew me away about permaculture and the power of nature. I loved it. Read recently a book called My Big Toe, which is a very unusual book about uh, spirituality and the supernatural written by a physicist to really merge the two worlds together, but a bit of a complex reading, so not for everyone. Lovely. And finally, what is one thing that you hope your future self will have achieved? The mission is very straightforward. My dream is that by the time I leave, I will have invested every dollar I've earned, every ounce of energy that I will have left to have created a million champions that will make a billion people happy and I will be completely forgotten. Mo, thank you so, so much. I think this is going to be one of those episodes that 
I am just going to gain more from every time I listen back to it. And I'm really, really excited for people to read your book. Thank you so much for giving me this time with you. I'm very grateful. You're very, very kind to me. Thank you so much. I loved our conversation and I hope our listeners will find value in it. Wow, what an episode, right? Definitely one that you might want to return to or at least share with a friend. I do think this is an important message to get out there. So you can send them the link directly via any kind of AI that you're using or on your social media tagging me at Venetia LaManna and tagging at ATST podcast. As always, please do check out the episode notes for links to my amazing guests and their work. And I'll see you back here next week for a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 